John 12, 36 to 38, they did not believe. We'll read the second half of 36 and through verse 43. These things Jesus spoke, and he departed and hid himself from them. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him in order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this cause, they could not believe, for Isaiah said again, He has blinded their eyes, and he hardened their heart, lest they see with their eyes and perceive with their heart, and be converted, and I heal them. These things Isaiah said, because he saw his glory, And he spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him, lest they should be put out of the synagogue. For they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Amen. Let's pray. Our Lord, we ask you to help us to see what your word teaches here. And may we always seek your approval, your praise, your glory, and not our own. We ask, Lord, that we will indeed believe and not be like these who were hardened and full of unbelief. Grant true faith to each of us, and may that faith increase and produce much fruit so that we might prove to be disciples of Christ. And we ask in his name. Amen. Christ, in verses 34 to 36, introduced the fact that He had to be lifted up and He had to die on the cross. And if those who are going to follow Him, they have to follow Him in the light. Denying the cross is walking in darkness. Embracing the cross of Christ, His crucifixion on their behalf, is walking in the light. And walking in the light from that day forward embracing the cross of Christ, believing in the death of Christ on their behalf for their forgiveness of sins and thereafter walking in righteousness, following Christ faithfully between conversion and coffin, between conversion and consummation of the end of the age. This is what he was teaching in the previous passage in 34 to 36. And after he said so, We notice in verse 36, the second part, these things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. Why does he depart and hide himself? And further, verses 37 and 38, when it says this, it also declares that these people refused to believe in him. They did not believe in him. What was happening? Why did they not believe in him? It is further explained at the last part of verse 38 and through 43 that it is ultimately God's sovereign will to blind them and not believe. But before we reach that part, the last part of this passage in verses 39 and following, we must contemplate what first happens here, what is first explained here in verses 36 to 38. 
which has some overlap, but there are two parts here. In 36 to 38, we have primarily, not exclusively, primarily man's will and man's responsibility to believe. And if he does not believe, then the judgment is on him. But then we have the sovereign will of God at the last, very last part of verse 38, and then especially in verses 39 and 40, clearly explained his sovereign will explained here. That ultimately they don't believe because God did not choose them to believe. But they're still guilty. And guilty of unbelief. And that unbelief and guilt of unbelief is explained in verses 42 to 43 that though Isaiah and Christ preach Christ, that people believe superficially but not believe actually. They believe superficially but not substantially. They believe that he is what he said he was and claimed to be, but they won't openly teach it. They won't openly believe it and confess it because really... They want the approval of men. They want the praise of men. They fear man and don't fear God. That's why people don't openly talk and preach Christ, the true Christ. That's what we have here in our passage. Verse 36, the last part of it. These things Jesus spoke and he departed and hid himself from them. Jesus spoke these words. And then he left. Why did he hide himself, as the text says? Why did he hide himself? It's not new for Jesus to hide himself or for him to depart. He doesn't always hang around. He doesn't always hang around for a couple of reasons. Well, the main reason is they don't believe. The second reason is because they don't believe, they want to arrest him and they want to kill him. Basically, they don't believe, so Jesus walks away. And he walks away because they don't believe, and also he walks away because they might kill him. John chapter 7. John chapter 7. Verse 30. 730. They were seeking, therefore, to seize him. And no man laid his hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Christ has been preaching the gospel and they want to seize him. They want to arrest him and eventually kill him. 8.59, John 8.59, also having preached the truth. 8.59, therefore they picked up stones to throw at him. But Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. He hid himself and went out of the temple because they were unbelieving and ready to put him to death. Chapter 10, John 10, 39. John 10, 39. Also after preaching the truth. Therefore, they were seeking again to seize him. But he eluded their grasp. After telling them the truth, they refused to believe in the truth. They wanted to arrest him, but Jesus escaped their arrest. And that's also what we have right here in John 12. They refused to believe because he called on them to walk in the light, to believe in the light. He called on them to do so in verse 
verses 35 and 36. He says, while, uh, A little while longer the light is among you. Walk while you have the light, that the darkness may not overtake you. He who walks in the darkness does not know where he goes. While you have the light, believe in the light, in order that you may become sons of light. They didn't want to believe in the light, so he hides himself. Probably because they wanted to kill him, but at least because it was no, there was no point. They didn't believe, they refused to believe, so he walks away. This is also true in Matthew 13. Matthew 13. At the very end of the chapter, Matthew 13, 58. Matthew 13, 58. When his own people noticed what he was preaching and, and saying and doing, performing many miraculous signs, they could not believe that he, from a very lowly, obscure family, could have these abilities and have all this wisdom. They couldn't believe it. Verse 58. And he did not do many miracles there because of their unbelief. When their unbelief persisted, he did not continue to do any miracles there. He did not. He walked away. He withheld from them things that they didn't deserve to experience anymore. Matthew, Matthew chapter 7, Matthew 7 and verse 6. Christ also taught us to do the same. Matthew 7, verse 6. This has to do with people who refuse to believe and eventually even might threaten us with violence. Matthew 7, 6. Do not give what is holy to dogs and do not throw your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. Don't give what's holy to dogs. Don't throw pearls before swine. Why should dogs and swine have holy things and pearly things? They shouldn't. No one using his mind gives pearly jewels to swine. Correct? Therefore, when we figure out who is a dog and who is a hog, we should not give the holy things of God, the pearly things of God, to them. Because two things will happen. They will trample them under their feet. And we will see it before our very eyes and ears that they will take the Word of God. They might even take a Bible we give them or a portion of the Bible we give them and tear it up in our presence. They might throw it into the fire. They might throw it onto the ground and step on it. They might do something like that. They might give something good that we give to them and then blaspheme Christ. That's one problem. The other problem is they might turn and tear you to pieces. Just like they tried to turn and tear Christ to pieces to kill Him, they might do that to us. When a dog or a hog, a wild dog or a wild hog, chases after a man, an unarmed man, will he not tear us to pieces? Of course he will. Or it will. The dog or the hog will. If we are uh, without strength and unarmed, they will win. 
and tear us to pieces. They'll eat us all up. That might happen. That's why Jesus departed. He departed at times, and we also must depart at times. We have to understand that the gospel, the gospel, the responsibility of preaching the gospel is ours, but it is not an indefinite, eternal, continuous obligation when we face this kind of opposition. There are times when we have to walk away. Isaiah says, Isaiah 55, 6 and 7. Isaiah 55, 6. Seek the Lord while he may be found. Call upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way and the unrighteous man his thoughts and let him return to the Lord and he will have compassion on him and to our God and he will abundantly pardon. Seek the Lord, call upon him while he may be found, while he is near. This is the urgency with which we have to tell people, preach the gospel to people, that today is the day of salvation, 2 Corinthians 7, 2. This is the time to believe, not at a later time. Don't pretend with yourself and with us and others. Don't pretend now is the time to believe. Because now is the time that Christ may be found. Who knows what's going to happen to you? Who knows if you will ever hear this truth again? Who knows... If what I say now will be forgotten once we depart from each other, you might forget and never hear the same truth again. Not only that, but you might die. You might die the moment we depart. Luke chapter 13. Luke chapter 13. 13, 4 to 5. Luke 13, verse 4. Or do you suppose that those 18 on whom the tower of Siloam fell and killed them were worse culprits than all the men who live in Jerusalem? I tell you no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. When a tower falls, usually a tower falls on accident, right? <laughs> And do the people around that tower expect the tower to fall on them? No, because it's an accident. They didn't expect it. They thought that they were going to live the next day. They thought they were going to eat their next meal. They thought everything was going to be just fine with them. But an accident occurred. And he says that these kinds of accidents not only fall on the 18 people here in this case, but this kind of thing might happen to you so what should you do before something like, happens, like that happens to you? Repent. Repent. Turn away from sin. Jesus walked away from people, and he taught us to walk away from people, if they persist in unbelief, and if they persist in using their unbelief against us. It's time to walk away. Another factor we see here, another point that the Apostle John makes is in John 12, both verse 36 and 37. These things Jesus spoke. Also in verse 37, but though he had 
performed so many signs before them. Though he had performed so many signs before them, both his speech, which was in the previous passage, and his signs, his miracles, both his speech, whatever he preached to them, and whatever he did in their presence. He actually preached in their presence and he actually performed in their presence these miracles. There was no doubting what he said. There was no doubting what he did. No doubting any of that. They refused to believe. Because he says, though they had, he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. The issue with people is not usually a lack of truth nor a lack of evidence. It's not a lack of truth or evidence. It's not a lack of knowing the truth of the gospel nor evidence that the gospel is actually true, such as the miracles of Christ, the signs of Christ. That's not the issue with people. Not usually. Of course, there are many people who have yet to hear the true gospel, but the people that we encounter day by day, often they've already heard words like gospel, Christ, Bible, salvation, sin, repent, believe. They've heard words like that. So those words are not completely strange words. They're not completely weird words to them. They've heard those words before. They just refuse to believe in those words. That's John's point here. He had said so many things and he had performed so many signs. John 5. John 5:36. John 5:36. But the witness which I have is greater than that of John, for the works which the Father has given me to accomplish, the very works that I do bear witness of me that the Father has sent me. You want evidence? The works I've done, the miracles I've performed, that the Father gave me to perform, I, in fact, did them. John chapter 10. John chapter 10. 10, 32. 10, 31 and 32. The Jews took up stones again to stone him. Jesus answered them, I showed you many good works from the Father, for which of them are you stoning me? I showed you many good works, many miracles, supernatural acts of God. Through me, I showed you them. For which of them are you stoning me? I healed people. I did many good things. Why are you stoning me? And then they say, it's not because of what you are doing, but because of what you said. But then they can't prove that what he said was wrong. See how they deflect? Now, John 20. Why did Jesus do all these miracles? Why did he perform them? He performed them so that we might believe. John 20, 30 to 31. Here he tells us the purpose of his book. John 20, verse 30. Many other signs, therefore, Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book, but these have been written, that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. The reason for the miracles recorded here is that we might believe in the gospel of Christ. And by believing, have 
eternal life. Let's also notice from Matthew, Matthew chapter 4, verse 23. Matthew 4, 23 to 25, the kind of good works that he performed. Matthew has a summary of them here. Matthew 4, 23, the kinds of good works. And Jesus was going about in all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the gospel of the kingdom and healing every kind of disease and every kind of sickness among the people. And the news about him went into all Syria and they brought to him all who were ill, taken with various diseases and pains, demoniacs, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. And great multitudes followed him from Galilee and Decapolis and Jerusalem and Judea and from beyond the Jordan. Christ is preaching the gospel and he's performing miracles. Matthew says, every kind of disease, every kind of sickness. This news spread was widespread that great multitudes, great crowds assembled. They all witnessed it. They all knew it was true. They all knew it was true. There was no denying the truthfulness of them, right? And the kinds of things he did, the diseases, it says various diseases and pains. Demoniacs, demon-possessed people, epileptics, paralytics, and he healed them. When a life has been transformed, Let's say with a disease like Luke 13, the woman who had the hemorrhage for 18 long years caused by Satan. When she was healed, why would anybody complain about that? What about a demoniac? When a demoniac is healed, you see a man who rants and raves and foams at the mouth, who's a danger to himself and to society, walking around like a wild beast. And people have to avoid him. A demoniac. When people see men like that, and then that kind of a man is healed. The demon is exercised or thrown out of him, sent out of him by the power of Christ. Why would anybody object to that? Why? In the same way, whenever we have been converted... Whenever God has worked in our life, whenever He has changed us, when we used to have a profane mouth, when we used to use profanities, and now we don't, why would anybody object? When we used to be a drunkard, when we used to be a drunkard, and now we don't do that anymore, and when we were a drunkard, we had uncontrollable behavior, we had uncontrollable emotions, We skipped work. We became lazy. We vomited. And then we lay down or stepped in our vomit. And then now we're not drunkards anymore and we don't do any of those things anymore. Now we are sober 24-7. Why would anybody object to that miracle of God in our life? Whatever the sins used to be that we don't commit now, People should be happy about that. They should have been happy with what Jesus did. They should be happy with what Jesus does in our life and not object to it. But a staunchly unbelieving heart 
will rise up against not only Christ, but also us. They won't believe. Though the work of God is evident, it's clearly evident, they refuse to believe. That's what John says. He says, yet they were not believing in him. They just refuse to believe in him. It doesn't matter what is done, what is said, they will not believe. Now, in the book of John, the need to believe is what he emphasizes again and again. The need to believe. Why would he emphasize the need to believe and then describe it in so many ways? Why would John emphasize the need to believe and then describe true belief and even false belief in so many ways throughout the book? Why would John do so? He does do so, we will see in a moment. But why would he do so? He does so because everyone says he believes. Everyone says he believes, and yet they don't understand true belief and false belief. True faith and false faith. They don't understand the difference. Because everyone says so, therefore it must be so. If someone says he believes, then he must be a believer. If someone says he's a Christian, he must be a Christian. When actually, that's not the case. He might be a Christian, but he may not be a Christian. We have to know what is true faith and what is false faith. John emphasizes this in his book so that we might know. Let's look, for example, John chapter 1. John chapter 1. We'll begin there. John chapter 1, verse 10. We'll read 10 to 13, or 9 to 13. John 1, 9. There was the true light which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. He came into the world, the world did not know him. He came to his own, meaning his own people, his own nation, the Hebrew nation, and they did not receive him. Those who did receive him and believe in him, verse 12, do so because they are born of God. It requires being born of God to truly believe. John tells us at the outset, that's what's required to truly believe. John 3. John 3. 3.18. John 3. 18. He who believes in him is not judged or condemned. He who does not believe has been condemned already because he has not believed in the only begotten Son of God. He who believes in him is not condemned. If we want to avoid condemnation, we must believe in him. If we do not believe, condemnation is already on us. 
we already have the sentence of condemnation. Why? Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. We must believe to avert the condemnation of God. John 3.36 3.36 He who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who does not obey the Son shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. Abides or remains on him. The wrath of God. If we believe, we have eternal life. But the opposite of belief is disobedience. The opposite of belief is disobedience. But he who does not obey the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. John 5, 38. John 5, 38. And you do not have his word abiding in you. For you do not believe him whom he sent. If we do not believe in the Son of God whom the Father sent, that's proof that God's word is not in us. If we do believe in the Son of God whom the Father sent, then God's word is in us. No one can say that he believes in the word of God if he does not believe in the Son of God. If you don't believe in the Son of God, then you do not possess the Word of God in your heart. According to John 5.38. John 5.44. What keeps people from believing? John 5.44 answers this. How can you believe when you receive glory from one another and you do not seek the glory that is from the one and only God? When men receive glory from each other, praise from each other, when they are more concerned about what his neighbor thinks, his friend thinks, his spouse thinks, his children think, his parents think, whoever, his employer thinks, his government thinks, his mayor thinks, his governor thinks, his president thinks, when he's more concerned about what, his, what others think, the glory that might come from them then from the glory of God, the one and only God, it's impossible to believe. He says, how can you believe? How can you believe? 45 to 47 also. Do not think that I will accuse you before the Father, the one who accuses you is Moses, in whom you have set your hope. For if you believed Moses, you would believe me, for he wrote of me. But if you do not believe his writings, how will you believe my words. The Old Testament and the New Testament are one harmonious unit, one harmonious message, the message of salvation in Jesus Christ, his death and resurrection for the forgiveness of sins and eternal life. That's the message of the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation. Moses believed it and he preached it. Jesus believed it and he preached it. True faith requires this understanding. Further, we read in John 6. John chapter 6. 6, 64 to 65. John 6, 64 to 65. 
But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he was saying, For this reason I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted him from the Father. There were those who did not believe. No surprise to Christ, no surprise to the Father. In fact, if the Father grants them to the Son, then they will come to the Son. They will believe in the Son. This kind of true belief requires the gift of the Father to the Son of the people the Father wants to save. John chapter 8. Actually, John 7. First, John 7. John 7, verse 5. John 7, verse 5. For not even his brothers were believing in him. Not even his brothers were believing in him. Not at this point. By Acts chapter 1, they do believe. But at this point, they don't believe. Which means that unbelief may reside in the same family, among siblings. Unbelief, whether temporarily or permanently, unbelief may reside in one's own family. In spite of knowing the truth. Certainly his brothers heard the truth. They heard about the truth and they saw the miraculous signs he performed, yet they refused to believe. John 9. John 9, 18. The blind man who was healed, it says this about him, 9, 18. The Jews therefore did not believe it of him that he had been blind and had received sight until they called the parents of the very one who had received his sight. They refused to believe in the testimony of the man who actually experienced blindness and then sight. They refused to believe in that. That shows that unbelieving people refuse to believe in that which is self-evident evidence. Self-evident evidence. They refused to believe. That which was staring at them in the face, they didn't shake off their stubborn unbelief to believe it. It had to take them listening to the parents. And even then, they didn't want to. It was a confirmed fact after the parents told them, but not a believing fact for them. It was a confirmed fact, but not a fact of faith for them. Unbelief. We've seen here now, John, and these are just a few examples in the book of John that John has been showing to us that the people don't lack the word of truth and they don't lack the evidence that they should believe that word of truth. What they really lack or what they really are guilty of is unbelief. The unbelief rests on the individual who refuses to believe. The unbelief does not rest on the preacher the, usually, I mean, ultimately, it does not rest on the preacher. He may be a false preacher. And then, in that case, it would rest on the preacher too. But when he has heard the truth, the responsibility is on the hearer. 
Do you believe? You must believe. You should believe. You ought to believe. You better believe or face the judgment of God, the wrath of God. It rests on the individual, as we've seen here in John. Not on the preacher, not on the friend, not on the spouse, not on the sibling, not on the stranger who passes out tracts. The issue, the problem of unbelief is in the individual. Verse 38. Verse 38. In order that... Now, when this happens, when, this, when it happened then, and when it all happens at any point, verse 38 further explains what's going on. They were not believing in him. Why? In order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled, which he spoke. Lord, who has believed our report, and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? In order that, your Bible may say that, so that, or this is so that, something of that nature. In all of these cases, it has to do with the purpose of God through the Word of God. The purpose of God. This is not saying that it happened to happen that way. It's an accident, happenstance. It was unpredictable. He's not saying that at all. So when unbelief does occur, we have to understand that unbelief occurs according to the purpose of God also. But the purpose of God is not to be blamed. It's the sinfulness of man to be blamed. He described their unbelief already and then says, in order that for the purpose of the word of Isaiah the prophet being fulfilled. Isaiah predicted this. He predicted it not only in the days of Christ, but he predicted it in his own day. God told Isaiah that it would happen when he was a prophet. And it's also true in the days of the apostles which shows, and we will show that in a moment, that it is something true of Isaiah's time and something true of Christ's time in his incarnation and also something true of the apostolic time and something true of our time. It will always be true that this is the case, that God predicts, God prophesies that people will not believe. They will refuse to believe, but that's okay. This is the way God appoints history. This is the way God appoints human events. This is the way God ordains for them to happen. No accident, but by the appointment, sovereign appointment of God. God Almighty works it this way. Isaiah the prophet, he's consulted here that the word, in order that the word of Isaiah the prophet might be fulfilled. Isaiah. When he says Isaiah, of course, whenever the Bible identifies an individual, it's to make sure that we know which individual we are speaking of. Sometimes that is the reason that an individual is mentioned and then a clarification which one we're talking about. Just in case there are two or three or ten Isaiahs, two or three or ten Nehemiahs, so on and so forth, right? The Bible does so. But in this case, he calls him the prophet not only to make sure we understand who he's talking about, he could have called him Isaiah the son of Amos, because that's the way Isaiah called himself in Isaiah 1.1. 1, 1. 
Isaiah the son of Amos, in the days of Hezekiah, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. That's the way he identifies himself. But here, the Apostle Paul calls him, I'm sorry, the Apostle John calls him Isaiah the prophet, the true prophet of God. The same Isaiah that we have in the book of Isaiah. This Isaiah the prophet, he knew these things, he heard these things, he wrote these things, he preached these things, true things in his day and in a future day. That's Isaiah the prophet. This is the Isaiah he means here. And what is it? For example, the immediate example in verse 38 is, Lord, who has believed our report and to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? Which is what he wrote in chapter 53, verse 1. Isaiah 53, 1 was Isaiah asking the Lord about the matter and about the paucity of people who believed. That's what he meant. Lord, who has believed our report? That's Isaiah saying, Lord, there aren't very many people who believe. That's what he meant there. So this is the Isaiah we're talking about. Isaiah, the prophet of God, who foresaw and predicted these events. Also notice in verses 40 or verse 40, he has blinded their eyes and he hardened their heart lest they see with their eyes, perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. That is a quote from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. Isaiah 6, 10 or 6, 9 and 10 for context or 6, 8 to 10 for the context of that immediate quote. The apostle quotes Isaiah in Isaiah 6 to say that God ordained it this way. This is the prophet who correctly predicts the future and preaches the truth. Our Isaiah, the prophet. Having said that, what is it that Isaiah knew and preached about Christ? We see in verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. When we come to that passage, we will delve into it some more. But let me just give you a sampling of what Isaiah the prophet knew and saw about Christ. What he saw of Christ. We'll start in Isaiah chapter 4. Our sampling will be from chapters 4 to 11 in the book of Isaiah. Isaiah 4, verse 2. Isaiah 4, verse 2. We'll read 2 to 3. In that day, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious, and the fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. And it will come about that he who is left in Zion and remains in Jerusalem will be called holy, everyone who is recorded for life in Jerusalem. What's Isaiah talking about? He says, in that day, when the prophets say in that day, it has reference to the days of Christ, between his first and second comings, in that day. He says, the branch of the Lord will be beautiful and glorious. Who's the branch? Your Bible may have a capital B, meaning it's Christ. Christ is called the branch, the branch of the Lord, who is beautiful and glorious. The F of fruit also, I think, should be capitalized. 
because he's also the fruit of the earth. The best fruit of the earth will be the pride and the adornment of the survivors of Israel. Talking about us, the remnant or survivors of Israel, Christ is our pride, Christ is our adornment. And we are the ones who are left, we are the, re- the remains, the remnant of verse 3, called holy and recorded for life in Jerusalem, the heavenly Jerusalem. That's us, because of Christ. Isaiah 6, Isaiah 6, 8. Isaiah 6, 8 to 10. Then I heard the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send, and who will go for us? Then I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and tell this people, Keep on listening, but do not perceive. Keep on looking, but do not understand. Render the hearts of this people insensitive, their ears dull, and their eyes dim. Lest they see with their eyes, hear with their ears, understand with their hearts, and repent and be healed. He hears the voice of the Lord in verse 8, but the voice says, I and us. If it's the Lord, why does the Lord say, I, and then he says, us? Who is a part of the us? The us includes Father, Son, and Spirit. Father, Son, and Spirit. And here he's told by the voice of the Lord to go and preach though they're not going to listen because I'm not going to allow them to listen. I'm not going to make them listen. That's the meaning of verses 9 and 10. Yes, Isaiah, go and preach, but they're not going to listen. So Christ here in chapter 6. And also chapter 6, verse 1. In the year of King Uzziah's death, I saw the Lord sitting on a throne, lofty and exalted, with the train of his robe filling the temple. When uh, Isaiah saw the Lord sitting on a throne in the temple, lofty and exalted, who was the Lord that he saw? It's the Lord Jesus that he saw. And that's what John 12, 41 says. These things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and he spoke of him. Isaiah spoke of Christ. Isaiah chapter 9. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. Isaiah 9, 6 and 7. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders. His, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or of peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. Jesus Christ is the child born, the son given. The government is on his shoulders. He means the eternal government is on his shoulders. He's the wonderful counselor, mighty God, eternal father, prince of peace. Only Christ. Not Isaiah, not David, not Solomon, not Hezekiah, not Josiah. Nobody like that. It's Christ. Verse 7 confirms it because there's no end to his government, no end of peace. On the throne of David, he will reign and he will do so with true justice and righteousness forever. Forever. True justice and righteousness forever. Chapter 11. Chapter 11. Another sampling of Christ 
in Isaiah. Isaiah 11, verse 1. 11, 1 to 5. Then a shoot will spring from the stem of Jesse, and a branch from his roots will bear fruit. Let's pause right there. These terms, shoot and branch, should be capitalized. And we know he's talking about the descendant of David because Jesse was the father of David. So who is this son of David that will spring forth, will bear fruit? Who is this, we must ask? It has to be Jesus Christ endowed with the Holy Spirit. Verse 2. And the Spirit of the Lord will rest on him. Now our editors capitalize the H of him. Rest on him. The Spirit of wisdom and understanding. The Spirit of counsel and strength. The Spirit of knowledge and the fear of the Lord. And he, capital H, will delight in the fear of the Lord. And he will not judge by what his eyes see, nor make a decision by what his ears hear. But with righteousness he will judge the poor and decide with fairness for the afflicted of the earth. And he will strike the earth with the rod of his mouth and with the breath of his lips he will slay the wicked. Also, righteousness will be the belt about his loins and faithfulness the belt about his waist. Jump down to verse 10. Verse 10. Then it will come about in that day. What's that day? Our day. Between the first and second comings of Christ that the nations will resort to the root of Jesse, who will stand as a signal for the peoples, and his resting place will be glorious. This is Jesus Christ that Isaiah preached. We also, we also see in John 12, when Isaiah prayed to the Lord, He says, who has believed our report? Who has believed our report? What did he mean by that? Who has believed our report? Isaiah meant that though we preach the truth of Christ, though we preach the true gospel, hardly anybody is around who believes it. That's what he meant. Isaiah preached a remnant. That's in his prayer. Who has believed our report? Remnant. We saw the word remnant there in chapter 4, verses 2 to 3. Isaiah 4, 2 to 3. Survivor, remnant, those who remain. He was preaching that in Isaiah 4, 2 to 3. He also preached it in Isaiah 1. Isaiah 1, verse 9. Isaiah 1.9 Unless the Lord of hosts had left us a few survivors, we would be like Sodom. We would be like Gomorrah. Sodom and Gomorrah completely wiped out except for Lot and his two daughters. Right? And wife temporarily on the way out. But basically just Lot. He says that if God hadn't left some survivors, some of the remnant, some of the few faithful, if he hadn't left some, we would have been completely obliterated as a nation with no believers whatsoever. Isaiah preached it. Isaiah 10. Isaiah 10, verse 
20, 20 to 23. This passage is quoted uh, in the New Testament in Romans 9, 27 to 28. Isaiah 10, Isaiah 10, 20. Now, it will come about in that day that the remnant of Israel and those of the house of Jacob who have escaped will never again rely on the one who struck them, but will truly rely on the Lord, the Holy One of Israel. A remnant will return. And by return, he means repent. A remnant will repent. The remnant of Jacob to the mighty God. For though your people, O Israel, may be like the sand of the sea, only a remnant within them will return. Only a remnant within them will repent. A destruction is determined overflowing with righteousness. For a complete destruction, one that is decreed, the Lord God of hosts will execute in the midst of the whole land. So judgment for the many who are like the sand of the sea, but only a remnant will actually come to the mighty God, only come and be saved from their sins, only a remnant out of his whole nation. Isaiah. This doctrine of the remnant shouldn't surprise us at all. We know that in the days of Noah, though there were billions of people upon the earth, only eight were spared from the destruction in the days of Noah. In the days of Abraham, Abraham pleaded with the Lord before he destroyed Sodom and Gomorrah and went from 50 to 10 persons. He said, Lord, if there are 50, will you spare? And God said, yes, I will spare. But there weren't 50. And he went all the way down to 10 and he couldn't find 10. That's why Sodom was destroyed in the next chapter in Genesis 19. And Lot practically was the only faithful one there. Lot was. Then in the time of Moses, did Moses have, when he delivered the whole nation of his people out of Egypt, were those people friendly to him? Were those people agreeable to him? Were those people cordial to him? Were the people full of faith and obedience? Whenever he spoke, whatever he said, were they always listening to him? No. Read the book of Numbers, the middle part of the book of Numbers from Numbers 11 to 25, and you'll see how often they grumbled and disputed against Moses. They brought misery upon him time after time. Hebrews 3 to 4 says, though they were all delivered out of Egypt, they were unbelieving and they were disobedient. Hebrews 3, 12 to 19 teaches that Moses had just a few people who truly believed, though there were millions of people who were helped by him and by God through him. In the days of David, David also, he complains in Psalm 12. David, in Psalm 12, verse 1, he complains by saying this. Not in a sinful complaint, but in describing the reality of the situation. Psalm, 1, uh, Psalm 12, verse 1. Help, Lord, for the godly man ceases to be. For the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. The godly man ceases to be, the faithful disappear from among the sons of men. 
There's hardly anybody around me, Lord. I have a nation full of people, but few who are godly, few who are faithful. That's what David declares to the Lord. Jesus taught us that this would be the same with us. Luke 13. In Luke 13, Luke 13, 22 to 24. Luke 13, 22. And he was passing through from one city and village to another, teaching and proceeding on his way to Jerusalem. And someone said to him, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? Lord, are there just a few being saved? And he said to them, Strive to enter by the narrow door. For many, I tell you, will seek to enter and will not be able. Strive to enter by the narrow door. It's a narrow door and we must strive. We must work hard to ensure that we are passing through the narrow door the way God intends. Right? That answer... Then he illustrates it. That's the fundamental answer in verse 24. And then with an illustration, 25 to 30. He's saying, few will enter. The answer to the question, Lord, are there just a few who are being saved? His answer is yes, just a few are entering that narrow door. He's not speaking of only his generation. He's not speaking of only Isaiah's generation or Elijah's generation or David. He's speaking of this is the way it is throughout history. Strive to enter by the narrow door because few are being saved. Few in reference to percentage, not few in reference to number. In number, they are innumerable. Like it says in Revelation 7-9, I saw a great multitude which no one could count. No one could count the great multitude of the redeemed in heaven. So it's innumerable in number or quantity, but it is few in percentage. Few in percentage. The remnant. Well, we will pick up next time at the end of verse 38 as he transitions to explain the arm of the Lord and what that means. Too few people is the arm of the Lord actually revealed. But meantime, what should we understand? When we hear the word, when we understand the works or the evidence of Christ, we ought to believe. And if we don't believe, it's on us, not on God. It's on us. But don't be discouraged when few believe. It's always that way. He who has ears to hear, let him hear what the Spirit says. Amen.